Welcome to Inside Scoop Live. Hello, I'm Susan Villant. I'm your host for today. I'm really excited to be speaking on the phone with Kay Williams, one of the authors of The Matryoshka Murders. Filled with colorful characters, it is a cozy mystery novel that takes readers to Russia and to an unexpected climax in the story. But before we start, let's learn a little bit more about Kay. Kay's eventual move to an apartment in New York's crime-reading Hell's Kitchen became one of the catalysts for Butcher of Dreams, which is Kay's and Eileen's first thriller. After years of pursuing her acting dreams and fearful of spending her retirement as a bag lady begging for money outside actors' equity, Kay took a real job. A physician she worked for as a temp asked her to join him as he set up a primary care residency track at NYU Medical Center. The NYU job was too demanding to take time off to audition, so she and Eileen teamed up to write a move they had been contemplating for several years. Kay discovered that she didn't miss acting all that much. With fiction writing, she had total control and could play all the characters. For more information on Kay Williams and her book, visit her website at www.calliopepress.com. And that is C-A-L-L-I-O-P-E-P-R-E-S-S dot com. Hi, Kay. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing great, Susan. Um, we've got a sunny day here for a change. It's almost 89, and we've had we've had a lot of rain. <laughs> yeah, here in Texas has been horrible. No sun here, so you're very fortunate. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being with us today. I am very happy to be interviewing you because my husband is the one that read your book and did a review for Reader Views. Right, and right. He loved it. He loved it. Oh, that's fantastic. And for our listeners, we're talking to Kay Williams. She's the author of The Matryoshka Murders, who she wrote with Eileen Wyman, uh, who passed away, unfortunately, a few years ago. Kay, before we begin, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your background? Well, I grew up in Ohio, the Midwest, and went to college there. And after I graduated from college, I was a theater major in college. After I graduated, I thought I would really like to be able to be a professional actress, but I'm afraid to go to New York City alone. I, then I just happened to meet someone I'd known in high school at the television station. I took a job there, and she had the courage to come up to New York City with me. So, <laughs> So we arrived here... Uh, it was kind of a debacle, but we stayed for just nine months, and we just couldn't hack. We saw a lot of wonderful plays, though, but we didn't get anything done. She had been a um, script, uh, radio TV script writer. Uh, that was her uh, college major, mm-hmm. and we she hoped to get you know like some writing courses, and I would do some acting workshops or something, and so we just skedaddled and went back to the Midwest where. Our parents were glad they wanted us to have safer jobs, so we went back to college and got teaching degrees. And I taught for a year and a half, directed the senior class play, and wrote a lot of reviews, uh, mainly independent films, mm-hmm. foreign films, um, for the Columbus Dispatch. My dad worked there, and uh, they gave me a, a tryout. And actually, they offered me a job as a uh, down on the totem pole, but as a reviewer. But I thought I've got, I've got to really do this i've got to see if i can really hack it off regret it all my life so Mm -hmm. i got my friend eileen again had the courage (laughs) we drove three thousand miles from ohio we each had a car out to san francisco we'd never been there 
and found a place that was furnished. Actually, another girl went with us who wanted to get out of the Midwest, too. So the three of us found a place there that was furnished. It was on Page Street in San Francisco, just a block away from Haight, where the, you know, the flower children would move yeah. into <laughs> later. It was a great part of San Francisco, really. So I did a lot of theater there. We loved the place. It was a lot of freedom. It was kind of like the decade then, the 60s of counterculture. Mm -hmm. And I went out because I wanted to get my equity card. And I knew there was a a professional theater out there that had a very good reputation. The Actors Workshop actually was rather internationally known. I had heard about it uh, back in Ohio, but they were filled up. They, They wouldn't even audition me for another year. So I was able to get in with a couple of good non-union companies, Mm -hmm. and I did some shows with them, and then I did my audition for the Actors Workshop and got in with them and got my equity card eventually, and by the time I got it, I think a couple of other theaters had became professional along the way, but it was like an East Bay contract, so it paid like $40 a week. So oh, no. <laughs> I really had to have another job to do it, but you were getting paid. So then I found that all the equity shops were closing up for lack of funds, we were going bankrupt and everything, and I answered an ad in Variety and got a call back from a theater in Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh Playhouse, to come back for an audition. Well, that was a lot of money to invest. I thought, oh, gosh, should I do it? Okay, I'll fly back. I can stop off in Ohio and see my parents on the way. So I auditioned for them at at the Playhouse and got uh, a job. I was with them for two years. Awesome. And did a lot of nice things there. Then they couldn't renew my contract. They had lost some grant money. So I thought, here I am on the East Coast, so close to New York City. Do I dare <laughs> go into the city again? Oh, my gosh. So I thought, well, I'll go in. They had a big uh, theater communications guild. Every like, six months they had people come in from regional repertory theaters from all over. Mm-hmm. So you could do like one audition and hit several. I thought, I'll go to New York, find just like a women's residence to stay in or something like that and just hopefully do an audition and get out and get back into regional rep because that's really where I wanted to be where you would not be typecast you could have a wide variety of roles big and small and really stretch and grow mm-hmm. an actor it worked out you you're still there did you stay there in new york all this time do well yeah actually we had quite a <laughs> Quite a time. You know, it's always so difficult. I mean, now, forget it, to come to New York and try to find a place that's safe that you could afford. But it was always difficult to find that place. When yeah. I came up the first time and the second time when I was hoping to get in and out of the city. So it was like a miracle that uh, we actually lucked into a place we could really afford and have some money at. Uh, that was a little extra for $10 a week. We lived in the Baptist residence for women. Neither one of us were Baptists, but uh, (laughs) we got in, and it was a safe area of town. We felt safe there. Walk up, six-floor walk up, shared a bath, but you could eat enough for their breakfast to last you all day, so we really saved money, and, and it was great to live there. I have two daughters, and I see just how adventurous women are today. 
But I think I really admire more women that had that adventurous bug in the 60s and 70s because it was especially dangerous and uh, for women to go out only because it was women were viewed differently. I think. Well, and and not only that, there was an expectation uh, at the time uh, we went to New York the first time. I think practically everyone in my graduating class of college was married the summer after they graduated or soon after mm-hmm. to marry early, have children, and if you got a job, you would be either a teacher or uh, work in an office. And to want something different was really scary. Mm-hmm. So I agree, it, it was a... That whole time, it, I was so glad I had someone who would do it with because I thought, I, I don't have the courage to do it myself. Did your mother support your move, or was she very apprehensive? My mom and dad both were, they always knew when to keep quiet. I, I know they were worried, and I know that when we drove up the first time, my mother said later, after we had all the trouble with the apartment there, she said, I knew it was a bad move when we drove up to let you girls off and there was a woman without any shoes on sitting on the trash can in front of the place. She thought that was a bad omen. But, you know, they really let me do what I wanted to do, really. You know, they would always listen to me and offer advice. But I think they felt, like with most kids, you say no, then you want it even more and you're determined Oh, yeah, I, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I did everything my parents told me not to. Right, right. Yeah. So they were supportive, and and my dad, oh, he was wonderful, because he had kind of come up by his bootstraps. He was probably the last person to be hired by the Columbus Dispatch uh, without a college degree, Mm -hmm. uh, because it was like the, the end of World War II. They didn't have many men, and he had worked as a newspaper reporter at this small uh, town in Kenton. Uh, and then he, he went on there from doing the travel writing and editing the copy desk at first to having his own business column with his picture and byline at the end. He was really well known. And he grew up in a time when you could really do anything. Of course, he was a man, but he always told me, you know, you can do anything you want. And I really remember that all through my life. It meant so much to me to have him say that because I felt as a woman especially I couldn't at that time. That's awesome. It, it's amazing just to get those words from your own parents. It's just amazing how... You know, I never told him. <laughs> I, I, thought, oh, I kept it. It was in me, and I, it was part of me, but I never once said, you know, it meant a lot to me. Yeah. Well, we, we don't do that. <laughs> but, I know, I know. But I think they know. Yeah. You also went to Russia, and if I read correctly, uh, that's where your book, The Matryoshka Murders, got inspired. You went um, over there in 1991, where right. the setting is the same year for your book. How did that trip come about? And tell us a little bit about what an adventure that must have been for you to go there. Well, in my forays to find an acceptable place to live in 1972, I had accepted a job by answering an ad in the Village Voice. Mm -hmm. Uh, A filmmaker needs a gal Friday, own apartment. (laughs) I thought, oh, that's just what I'm looking for, but I don't know what he has in mind, but I'll go and see, you know, what the deal is. And that's how I met um, Jack O'Connell, an independent film director, writer, producer. Mm -hmm. And uh, he'd already had two or three films 
under his belt at that time. Anyway, he chose me out of a number of candidates, but just to be on the safe side, I kept the place at the Baptist residence <laughs> week, you know, and I made sure everything was okay, but uh, it turned out to be a good choice. I got a lot of experience. By that time, 1991, going to Leningrad, he had, you know, like most independent artists, was down on his luck financially. And even though I helped him out from time to time, I really had to take a real job, which I did at uh, NYU Medical Center, Bellevue Hospital, uh, not as a nurse or anything, just on the, you know, office staff. Mm-hmm. So, but in 1991, his film that I had really spent a week on uh, had helped with another trip to San Francisco mm-hmm. uh, with that. Uh, it had been invited to the Leningrad Documentary Festival, their second one. And so he asked me to go with him, and I thought, oh, boy, this is a chance of a lifetime. Mm-hmm. I've always wanted to see what it's like. And, of course, we had all heard my, that with Gorbachev there, uh, it's really opening up there, you know, glasnost, perestroika, openness, restructuring. So we both were excited to go, and he to show his film, and he thought he might get what he needed, some buyers who would license the film for their country. People were coming from all over the world. So when I, we got there, well, just before we got there, there had been a terrible economic crisis. That There was a big war on, which we didn't realize until we got there, too. Mm-hmm. There were the diehard hardliners from the Stalin days who wanted Russia to stay that way. And then Gorbachev was trying to open up the country and let them, you know, develop some free enterprise, that kind Mm -hmm. of thing. So it was a terrific tug of war. And uh, when we arrived, there were seemed to be soldiers everywhere. First of all, we had to go through customs. And they looked so mean and grim-faced. Yeah, I imagine. I thought we were... (laughs) We could be arrested, and I don't. I wouldn't know what for, but they would find a reason. A lot of them had been demobilized after the Berlin Wall fell, so they were at loose ends over there, and I think really, a lot of them really angry. and No one knew what was going to happen to the country. Inside Scoop Live is a global internet-based broadcast specialized in interviewing published authors about their current books and their areas of expertise. Join us and hear both well-known and upcoming writers talking candidly about their life, experience, as well as the business of being an author in today's literary world. Always interesting and current, we strive to bring our audience high-quality discussions that spotlight a vast diversity of authors in the field today. Our interviews are available 24-7 through direct podcasts, as well as MP3 download from your computer for your convenience. Please visit us at InsideScoopLive.com. Welcome back to Inside Scoop Live. Today I'm talking with Kay Williams one of the authors of The Matryoshka Murder. Stay tuned because we are going to continue this fun, interesting, and inspiring conversation with Kay about being a gypsy actor, her adventures in San Francisco and New York, her trip to Russia, and so much more. But in the meantime, you can check out The Matryoshka Murders at www.calliope.com. 
WordPress.com. The festival people were wonderful, mm-hmm. and they put a game face on everything despite the economic downturn, the uh, black market, uh, the ruble for a one American dollar get 30 to 50 rubles sometimes on the black market. Uh, they could buy nothing, the regular Russians. And men who had lost their jobs as professionals, like engineers, mm-hmm. were sending their wives out to work as prostitutes. Oh, wow. Uh, it was uh, just murder. And I thought anything could happen here. And there was such a, I guess, a difference between the cheery faces that they tried to put on the festival and they had these excursions to landmarks planned for us and they all went ahead gallantly to show us the side of Russia they were so proud of mm-hmm. and meanwhile the people were starving uh, people actually who had come to the festival did uh, get uh, into a cab situation similar to my heroine in the book uh, not as bad but mm-hmm. where they were taken to the outskirts of town and the cab driver wanted hard currency, you know, $10 more than the price he had quoted, or he was going to leave them there. And you can imagine a strange country where you don't know (laughs) the language. (laughs) Yeah. So it was, I thought, there is really a lot of fodder here for so much. And then when Olga, who is our translator, who who was just great, she, she knew so many languages, she knew English so well, and she took a shine to Jack and me and another filmmaker I met there, uh, Susan, who had done a film about Eritrea. So we went to her with all our questions, and she actually invited me to her home. I met her mother, who is a pediatrician, now retired on such a small salary she could hardly get by with the way the monetary situation Mm -hmm. was. And she explained a lot of things to me, and we, we became friends afterwards. She also said to me, she was divorced from her husband, and he had custody of their son, her young son, and she was saying to me, uh, it's like a third world country here for women. Mm-hmm. And while there had been a lot of inroads, advances for women in the U.S. in 1991, there were still some areas that needed, uh, you know, More work, a little yeah. better. Yeah, right, right. So when she said that, I thought, oh, I think there's a story here. So before you went to Stalingrad, you had never thought about writing a story or anything like that? Oh, no, the first, actually the first book that Eileen and I collaborated on was uh, Butcher of Dreams. The catalyst for that was when we moved into our final place where I am now, in the heart of Hell's Kitchen, a great new place that had actually gone into a receivership, and suddenly all the artists were being invited to apply, the acting professions and peripheral professions connected with the musicians, and uh, the deal would be that you would pay just a percentage of your gross salary. So if you had a lean time, it was just 30% of what you made, you know. It was really great. We have a view of the Hudson, swimming pool, balcony, 34th floor, like falling into. <laughs> Something that, uh, you know, no, no young person just starting now in New York probably could be able to afford. Oh, gosh, I, I would have had to leave New York if I hadn't um, yeah. you know, gotten into this apartment. 
Now I've lost my thread. What was your original question? <laughs> I, yeah. I wanted to know uh, um, if you had n- never thought about writing a story before oh, you went to well, Salem. Well, yeah, and the, the bad thing about the neighborhood, there's always a bad thing, <laughs> was <laughs> that it was the most crime-ridden neighborhood in the city. Oh. Um, there were a lot of peep shows on 42nd Street, drug deals, uh, a lot of prostitutes and pimps in the area. Mm-hmm. It was right near the Lincoln Tunnel, where you know, and they would stop the cars there. Oh, it was it was really murderous and scary and dangerous. So that was the catalyst for Butcher of Dreams. There were a lot of small theaters across the street, and I thought this would be great to use as a setting for our first book, and it would be a small repertory theater that gets a theater because they want to gentrify the neighborhood. For a dollar a year in this terrible, scary place, mm-hmm. and all the weird things that happened there, and I was able to rely on a lot of my theater experiences. And Eileen had been a large part behind the scenes and others, so we were able to come up with um, like a psychological thriller or horror called Butcher of Dreams that was really inspired by this awful neighborhood. Now, of course. So many decades later, it has gentrified to the extent I think there's only one or two places I can afford to eat at now in the neighborhood. <laughs> very safe. It's hard to say if it, you know, if it was better before or now, right? When you hear that, people were saying when they got into this place where I am now that the only way I'm going out of here is in a box because everyone I talked to, they've lived in terrible places. The rent was high, and the bathroom was in the bathtub was in the living room, walk up with rodents and wow. roaches. And even now, I, because I think for middle-class people, lower-class people, it's so difficult to find a place you can afford. They get away with charging exorbitant rents, even for terrible places. Mm-hmm. You also wrote, um, you actually work with your sister, revising your father's book, and I'm, I'm going to be honest. I wrote a book about my dad many, a while back, many years ago, and I worked perfectly with him, but I cannot imagine getting along with any of my siblings <laughs> in a work situation, you know, uh, revising a book or anything like that. So how did that work for you and your sister? Well, my sister Jerry and I, um, she stayed in Ohio and actually had a long career teaching English, high school English and drama. We've always been very close I'm four and a half years older, but I really took care of her when we were growing up, and she always looked up to me, which was good for my ego, and we just have always been close. In fact, we could look at each other in certain situations, and we knew what the other one was thinking. We could just burst into giggles or something, and no one would know what we, and we couldn't tell anyone what we were thinking, but we were both thinking the same thing. We got along quite well, and... I think someone always has to take the lead in the collaboration. So, of course, Dad had left behind a completed first draft mm-hmm. of this manuscript, all but the last chapter. And he started writing it at 90, 91, mm-hmm. in between his tour with his first book, Maud, about his mother, my grandmother who lived to be 110. Wow. He really was so... He had met a woman after my mom died and... They had lived together, and he wanted to put 
he had a great sense of humor, so he wanted to put in a lot of the humor of two people set in their ways trying to to get along and and the good times and scary times too, but mainly an upbeat uh, story, not really following the line of their relationship, but mm-hmm. it was you know the way he thought it should be, I guess. Then he was hospitalized for congestive heart failure as he grew a little older. Then he became totally blind from macular degeneration, and he had put so much heart and soul into it, and he still had about the last third of the book to go. So mm-hmm. I said, dictate it, I'll transcribe it. So he did that. He was just near the finish line, just this one last chapter that he wanted to be a happy ending, as happy as an ending could be with an 89-year-old man and a 79-year-old woman in a relationship. Mm -hmm. And um, he mentioned to me on the phone, he said, if I'm not able to finish this, I want you girls to finish it. You're giving me goosebumps. Mm -hmm. I said, oh, Dad, you will be. And I was just ready to come back to Ohio, where uh, Columbus, where he was and Jerry was. And since he couldn't see anymore, I'm going to read it aloud to him and see what he wanted to do with the draft and how to change. I mean, you don't know what you have till you get through the whole thing, and then you go back and uh, you can make your changes to align with the whole kind of through line of the thing. Mm -hmm. And before I got a chance to go back, he died suddenly with cardiac arrest. So a year passed, and we could not bear to look at the manuscript. And I just felt like crying every time we did. And I didn't know if we could do it. My dad had a very distinguished, uh, distinctive voice. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I gave it a look, and I belonged to this writer's group. So I said to Jerry, you know, I'm going to give it a try and see their reaction. So I started reading a little bit of it, and they re- got really into it because it opens like with a well, like a 1930s movie, you know, where these two bump into each other and get mad at each other. But, you know, there's going to be some romance there. Yeah. So then uh, Jerry and I, by long distance, started working on the whole thing and then vetting it with the writers group. And it took us about three years to really finish it. Then we got it published. It won prizes. It got a lot of critical acclaim, but really people liked it. I think it was kind of an anomaly at that time. I don't know if it is so much now. Where the leading characters, you know, one was 89 and one was 79. Yeah. And they were able to make a go of their relationship despite all the quirks and everything. And it had a lot of humor and it was upbeat. So we we took it around to about 75 senior centers, retirement centers, clubs. People were calling for us all the time in, in Ohio mainly. It's really hard to do something like that here, although I did get a few gigs in New York doing mm-hmm. it by myself. But the two of us would take it around and would read something from the book, do the uh, pictures that we had with a narration, and it kind of espoused our dad's philosophy. Don't just sit in the corner and wait to die, you know. Mm-hmm. Keep doing something, and if you can sing, sing. So everyone who was older responded to that, uh, who read it, and um, we were parts of like book discussion groups that said, you know, it gave me courage to enter into a relationship with someone that I, th- I thought was just like my brother. Another said it gave me courage to write a book at my age. I thought, well, I mean, what can I do? I'm 78, you know, life is over for me. Anyway, it was just, it's it's a fun story. Mm-hmm. But it is also, uh, you know, inspiring. Yeah, inspiring. It, it, we won an Ohio Anna Award for writing and editing, 
That's awesome. Because of what we had done. But like I said to Jerry, sometimes I felt like, you know, Dad was just kind of hanging over my shoulder, especially as we really tried to, to put in a happy ending. We thought, mm-hmm. what could be the happy ending that is realistic? And also, he, his voice was so great as Morgan, the male, mm-hmm. we could keep almost all of that beefed up. Uh, Dixie, the female, a little bit, but he had a lot of that, too, really based on the one he had met, <laughs> who was quite a character, I must say, quite different from my mom, who was more conventional. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy, um, when I was writing that book about my dad, it actually came from tape. He's still alive, and he just moved in with me. Uh, me and my mom just moved in with, um, you know, within our household. And uh, so we have three generations right now in my household. And um, I'm beginning to do revisions on the second book of his story. But what I found is by doing that is an understanding of uh, seniors because he was in his late 70s and he's now 86. So it's been 10 years. And, And also it gave me, I was lucky enough to do it while he was still alive. So it gave me such a beautiful relationship with him that that I didn't have. Oh, that's wonderful. That is is wonderful. I wonder what what is it that you got from working on this book with your sister from your dad? Was there like an aha moment of your relationship with him? I know that I I got so many things just by listening to my father's tapes and his life. Were there things that you didn't know about him? that kind of um, influenced you in your life, to, and he still does? Or what did you get from that? What gift did he leave you? Actually, I guess from that book, Jerry and I worked on it. I had a hard time persuading her to do it with me, though, because the woman that Dad met did not really turn out to be the best thing. So mm-hmm. anyway, uh, but what I was going to say, I probably... More than that book, we both had also worked on his earlier one when he was alive, a book about our grandmother Mm -hmm. who lived to be 110, and he paralleled her life with the emergence of modernized America, so it was like a biography memoir. Mm -hmm. We found out so many things about him, about the family, about, well, what life was like then, that everyone's life just grew you know, like in stature, it was like these people I took for granted. Mm-hmm. They were so courageous, so so strong, so original, independent, because they came over early on in America's history, you know, and uh, actually came in the middle 1800s, not too long after Ohio became a state and settled there with the Indians. And anyway, we found out all that background but just my dad being able to write it all down, he really had intended to do it just for the family, 50 pages. Mm-hmm. With the writer's group, they were so fascinated with, you know, he made he put his own heels on your shoes after you got them worn off when you were ice skating down to the creek, you know. <laughs> you know, how, would, how did that happen? Uh, and uh, although we always visited Grandma's farm, and heard about, oh, you girls should be lucky to get what you get for Christmas. We only got an orange. Well, then reading the book, we really understood how very poor they were. At at that time, at the turn of the century, the farmer of 100 acres, 
made about $150 a year if he was lucky. So uh, that was a real eye-opener and showed me the strength of the family and the dad had been a real leader in doing this and not pulling any punches when he wrote it either. Yeah. Yeah. So I understand, you know, how you feel. I felt so close with him after that. I mean, I'd always been close to him. I felt that we were uh, alike and I was like my mom, although I felt close to her too. Yeah, but it's it's a different thing to to get to know them as a kid, as a, a young person, because that's that's what I found. I'm like, I not only know my dad as my dad, I now know him as a 10 year old boy, you know, and uh, as a 16 year old boy, and all the stages in his life that I went through with him for this book. Right. And, yeah, and I thought that was uh, priceless, and I did not have a a, a, a big intimate relationship with my dad he was very he grew up in world war ii um in italy and in africa so he was very reserved and uh, after he did the it was like therapy when he gave me the tapes it was like a therapy thing because he totally opened up and now we were talking and uh, and i i am now from my siblings i was the less than knew him and now i am the most that knows him and so it's it's amazing just how wonderful it was. Um, so I really encourage everybody that has uh, still their parents to learn more about them because it's a really nice gift. It really is. And as you say, the closeness that develops, as especially as people age, I think they become vulnerable and feel mm-hmm. weak. And, and uh, to have that bolstering by a younger member of the family who listens to your stories, no, they aren't boring at all. Mm-hmm. They're revealing and fascinating and what a wonderful life you've had. Everyone should have that. Experience. Yeah, it, it definitely. We're running out of time, unfortunately, Kay, but this is I could talk about this all day. You have such an interesting life and such a wonderful storyteller voice. <laughs> oh, I'm enjoying it so much. I didn't realize that, you know, we we were like, whoa, way into the time. <laughs> so um, I hope I get to interview you again. I want to tell our listeners, uh, we've been talking with Kay Williams. She wrote The Matroska Murders with Eileen Wyman, who passed away a uh, few years back. Please check it out. Uh, you're not going to regret it. My husband loved it. Check it out at calliopepress.com, and that is C-A-L-L-I-O-P-E press.com. Okay, again, thank you so much for being with us. Do you have anything coming up that you want our listeners to know, any works coming up? Actually, you know, I'm working on transcribing my letters that I kept from all those times all over the country. Um, I had written, this was before email, I'd written a lot of letters to mom and dad and my dad. I didn't know until about two years ago he had kept everything. And they're they're fascinating to read, and I don't know if anyone would be interested. Uh, I guess I'll test it out to see if they would be interested in them as a book, simply because of, of the times and the history and how green around the gills. <laughs> well, with your storyteller uh, skills, I'm pretty sure that you're going to make it interesting um, and entertaining for readers to to read and to get an insight of a woman in that time searching for her own independence and her dreams during those years. I think it will be wonderful. So I hope oh, you. Well, that's encouraging. <laughs> <laughs> Again, thank you so much for being with us. I have a blast. 
Well, thank you. I've enjoyed it so much. You're you're wonderful to talk with. <laughs> thank you so much. And listeners, uh, thank you again for being with us. And until next time, 